Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, MJ, and I'm going to tell you about my number one secret when I shop for wine. The best strategy is to look at the back label and look for a trusted importer. And one of the most trusted names in wine for the past 30-plus years is Skernick Wines and Spirits. Since 1987, the Skernick brothers, Michael and Harmon, have scoured the earth looking to find super high-quality wines of distinction and then bring them back into the United States so that they can be available to you at your local store or restaurant. The company is headquartered right here in New York City, but they are also a direct wholesale distributor in eight states, including New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and last but definitely not least, my beloved wine home of California. They also import many wines that are sold in all 50 states through their partner distributors. I recently interviewed Harmon Skernick right here on the Black Wine Guy podcast, and let me tell you, these guys are the real deal. If you want to learn more about Skernick Wines and Spirits, please have a look at their awesome website. It's www.skernick.com. That's www.skurnik.com. Or you can even give them a call at 212 212- 273-W-I-N-E. That's 212-273-WINE. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, MJ, and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is Carlton McCoy, Jr., Master Somalia and Managing Partner of Lawrence Wine Estates. Carlton earned the title of Master Somali in 2013, becoming one of the youngest people and the second African-American to earn this prestigious title. Uh, He has worked in revered institutions such as Thomas Keller's Per Se, Marcus Samuelson's Aquavie, and Tom Colicchio's Craft Steak in New York City. Carlton was named president and CEO of Height Cellar in December of 2018. Uh, He supports each estate in their aspirations to craft elegant nuanced and terroir-driven wines sourced from naturally farmed estate vineyards. He is also the co-founder of the Roots Fund, a nonprofit that focuses on creating educational and employment opportunities for the BPOC community. Adventurous and athletic, Carlton enjoys traveling the world in search of great wine and spirits and pursuing physically challenging outdoor activities, including biking and running marathons. Welcome, Carlton. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Hmm. I'm really enjoying my time in New York right now. Being around people is like... Um, it's refreshing, right? Why? It's a blessing, huh? It, it takes so much for granted, man. Yeah, it's like um, you... Um, yeah, I, I didn't realize how much I missed it. And I'm not talking about just being around people because we would, you know, we pop in my office, but like, um, you know, being at a, you know, a dinner party with people you admire and, yep. and respect and... Um, oh. It's like a recharge. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. 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 So everybody, Carlton and I connected, you know, if you listen to this podcast through Instagram, um, 
you know, uh, a lot of shit went on last spring and more and more people in the industry started connecting. Um, and uh, we connected through there. And right when that, that he was on the cover of New York Times magazine, and I was like, hey, man, I have a po- I'm going to start a podcast. I want you on. I hadn't even started it then. <laughs> I hadn't even started it then. I was like, I want you. He was like, sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so um, tell us about the wine we're drinking this afternoon, man. So this is funny. I, you know, I, um, I tend to fixate on, on, on things and take like deep dives in. Um, I've been really fortunate in my career to, to be able to buy and drink and sell a lot of great wine. And, um, Sancerre is a region that I've always loved and I always thought was very underrated. Um, you know, the price to, to, to quality ratio is, um, is, is pretty incredible. Now, look, there's a lot of swill made just like any other appellation. But good Sancerre is, is a really brilliant wine and they can age. You know, I, um, within my company, um, you know, it's like a joke where if I'm coming to a dinner party, I'm bringing a bottle of like Cota Sancerre. Because yeah. I just think it's, it's you know, that is, Cota is like at the very, very uh, top echelon of the traditional style that I love. Mm-hmm. And I've been fortunate enough to buy a, a number of like older wines on auctions, like from the early, mid 90s. And they just age so well and they're so beautiful. The intensity of it uh, without being heavy is, is, it's like the, that's that's what you look for in the great wines is like can you get density of flavor without fatness mm-hmm. and still remain fresh and the texture is really incredible but this is a new producer i just i just grabbed this um um i always like to try new sancerre producers because there's a lot of small producers that um you know they only come to some markets and um you know and and, and the thing about it is the the, the price for entry to try is, is low enough that it's okay like even if it's not great you know it's gonna you're gonna get at the very least you know, a really fresh, vibrant glass of white wine, and that's yeah. okay. And what and and like, I mean, like, what is like the high end of Sancerre? Like, like, what would be like high end? Well, like, I mean, you've got like Vatan Sancerre. That's like not so. I mean, those are on the great market. You can two, three, four hundred dollars. Like, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I've had those ones before. I don't. I don't think those are worth it. Um, but I think you know, um, drinking Cota like current release, you know, Mondamne is like like seventy five bucks. I think, mm-hmm. uh, if not mistaken. So, and. Um, you know, for a great bottle of wine, I, I don't think that's too. Yeah, expensive. I mean, like, what would the equivalent from Burgundy would be like? Ridiculous, right? I mean, for seventy five bucks, you're not gonna you're gonna get a uh, probably like a um, entry level, a decent village wine. Yep. Um, not not from a great producer for sure. Like from a larger producer, it doesn't mean it's not. It couldn't be very very good sure. actually. Um, you know, for Chablis these days, those prices have gone up, so you can probably get a very entry level premier crew um, from a B level producer or. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 again, that barrier for entry price wise in Burgundy has just gotten astronomical. It's off the chain. Um, and, um, but Sunset, I think, still, and like everybody's been chasing the Loire, but, but, and I love Chenin Blanc. I really do. But I love, um, I love Sancerre. It's a, it's a, it's a region where, um, you know, the terroir definitely, I think, supersedes the varietal. Yep. And people go, well, I don't like Savion Blanc. I'm like, well, I don't like a lot of Savion Blancs from other places, but Sancerre is very special. And I think that's what you know. What makes the wine um, unique is is is, is that um, it's something about the place. It tames the what is the um, the normal sort of tropical, over the top characteristics of, of Sauvignon Blanc that people tend to not like. It, it, the minerality sort of takes over, and and that becomes um, the identity. And Sauvignon Blanc tends to be just sort of like the the you know the, the raw material used to transfer it right yeah and that's anything that's really special yeah 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 that's yeah. very cool so um let's 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 get to know carlton mccoy um uh, we we know through our research 
And by the way, man, thanks for coming in again. This is like very last minute, Joel. This is one but of those. But it's really great to be here. I, and I know. This is like, yeah. you know, I was like, hell yeah. I got no, the I really mean it. Like, it's good to be here. <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, you grew up in Southeast D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and I would think, were, was Marion Barry Mayor, Mayor Winger? Yeah, the first time. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so we got a he, city of politics. Go, go. <laughs> Uh, there's some great wine shops down there. Yeah. Um, but what actually – tell me about growing up in, in southeast D.C. So people don't know. Yeah, I mean. so, you know, we, we, we talk about this is, is, you know, every place in the world is constantly evolving. So when you talk about a place, you have to talk about when, right? So D.C. during that era was um, – was, it was, a, it was a, a very troubled place. Um, you know, D.C. was hit particularly hard with the crack epidemic. Right. And prior to that, it was one of the most forward-thinking, really progressive, highly educated black communities in America. Um, you know, very high percentage of, of, of home ownership amongst mm-hmm. the black community. And, you know, just so that community was just like a model of like, okay, well, you know, they're heading in the right direction, which was great. And then crack came in and destroyed an entire generation and, uh, and left a lot of kids um, from those parents in, in a really tough situation. So I was born in 1984. I was right in the heat of it. And, you know, going into the late 80s, early 90s, it was like the, the murder capital of the, the country at the time, um, per capita. And it was it was a really dangerous place. Like, you know, no no BS. It was just, it was nuts. It was wild. It was like the wild, wild west. So we we sort of grew up in and around that, understanding that as, as uh, ever-present danger. So, you know, restricted things like, even like when you walk home, you, like there was a certain streets you you couldn't take, right? Right. Because there was a lot of street gangs, things like that, and like you couldn't. They knew a neighborhood you were from. You couldn't walk down that street. I know. Yeah. It could be a difference of three streets, three right. blocks. Right. So you know things like that. You were just you sort of accepted as a norm, and that was just the way you sort of went about your life. But I was really blessed to have my grandmother, um, who who raised me. She was a Pentecostal preacher and um, just a really exceptional person. Um, and but but DC was pretty crazy. It was um, and, and it, it, it unfortunately it's it's. It's gotten a little better, but it hasn't changed a whole lot. Since yeah, then. yeah. The southeast has not. I mean, that's like no. It's seen that's really like normal. kind of yeah. been cordoned off. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like DC is, it 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 definitely like DC changed in 2016 big time. Like yeah. like it it yeah. Well, we know why, but um, yeah. but uh, you know, because I had went down to um, like the African American Museum, and, yeah. you know, and 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 being DC when. When Barack Obama was president, and being in DC when forty five was a completely different DC, you know it was. It does. It it, it does. Um, people forget that, um, you know, leadership is. It's not just the actions that you do. It's sort of the tone that you set, mm-hmm. um, because it, it it shows people how to interact with each other, um, and that's not just as a president of the country, as a leader of a company or right, or, right, or anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so if 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 if. You know, if you, you as a leader, you tend to be pretty sensible and, and, and civil. People tend to, to treat each other the same way. Yeah. 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 Um, you mentioned your grandmother. Um, yeah. Tell me about that. So uh, we in our research, like your grandmother, in, in addition to being a Pentecostal preacher, mm-hmm. uh, she was uh, she had a catering business. Yeah. So my grandmother was um, she was um, the eldest of 12 children. Uh, that's that's that back, my father same thing yeah. back in the day man people had kids man yeah but especially like if you were uh, Christian like they didn't believe oh, yeah. in protect Birth, you know, yeah. you know they, control, yeah. none of it none of it yeah. just like so my great my great grandmother was uh, you know on and off pregnant for like twenty five years you know and that was, and that was <laughs> yeah. so normal yeah yeah you know yeah. Um, so she was she was as you'd imagine 
responsible for, you know, partially for raising some of her brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. which is a very normal thing back then. And they grew up in a, a rural place initially and then ended up moving to the city. So she was an exceptional cook. And um, I grew up in the kitchen with her. I was always, from a very young age, um, oddly addicted to the kitchen. One, because I love to eat. Hence the reason why I have to, to I always say I have to, I have to work out every day just to maintain a dad bod with my with what I like to eat. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I, I, I listen, hard man, to keep this dad bod. I w- it was until the <laughs> pandemic. I was pretty good, but like I got I got like the COVID twelve and I can't yeah. shake it, man. No, it's and, tough. And I've been working out, and I, you yeah. know I I lift weights, I do kettlebells, and yeah. but I I need to do some cardio. Like literally, I like so many of my friends, like even my friends who work out, like my buddy who works out. He's like, he's like, oh, he's like, man. You're, you're worried about pushing 170. I'm pushing 180. You know, <laughs> like, I'm like, I, it's tough. It's tough. And I like to eat too. So I, I hear yeah, you. Yeah, man. It's one of the great pleasures. So, my grandmother, if, if you know, you're familiar with a lot, a lot of how the black church operates, it's not just a religious place. It's, it's really a sort of a community, community center, center for everyone. Yeah, yeah. My grandmother was the top. My grandma was a pastor of the church, um, third generation female uh, Pentecostal preacher. So, she really was sort of the, the head of that community. And, and we fed everyone in the community. Mm-hmm. So, I would go in early with my grandma on Sunday. And we would cook breakfast for the whole community, and then we would have a church service early morning, and then we would, we would go into the second service, and um, and then you would cook lunch for everyone, and then you would have a late night service and a late night dinner we would cook. So we'd we'd cook and supply three meals for people in the church and the community, and outside of that, do really large events, birthday parties, anniversaries, services, and things like that for up to three hundred people. So, um, you know, I was raised cooking for. You know, very high quality soul food for large amounts of people at a very young age. So the idea of like mise en place organization, we obviously we didn't call it. My grandma didn't know what that word was, but it was that. It was just like you know, you're doing deviled eggs for 300 people. Like you don't just do it on the whim. Like this prep, you set yeah. up a schedule. Okay. Yeah. So I was sort of trained to to, to be a chef very young. That's cool. Yeah. So, so um, what happened? How did you uh, go about? Like in high school. Um, you were in a culinary arts program. Tell us about sort of yeah. So when I was um, in high school, like a lot of kids from DC at the time, I was pretty troubled. So I actually dropped out of high school twice. Um, so I dropped out of high school when I was fourteen, and then um, I um, I could no longer go to DC public schools because of truancy. So I had to move to Virginia to finish that that grade. I lived out there for a year, and then they kicked me out of those schools because <laughs> uh, I, I got in a fight. And then uh, I moved back to DC, and um, the only school they let me go to was Anacostia at the time. Ah, I've been to Anacostia. Yeah, so I went to Anacostia Senior High School. Oh, wow. And then I dropped out of there again. And I didn't go to school for like almost six months. And my sister sort of convinced me to go back. I finally went back. And then when I got there, you know, the lady sat me down. She's like, look, you're a smart kid. You got all these issues. I'm going to help you work through this. She's like, but you got to take some electives. You know, it's a requirement. I'm like, okay, what do you got? And I just went down. None of it was interesting. Those kind of schools don't have very many options for right. electives. You know, they're, they're very low funding. But there was a, like a home ec sort of thing. And I was like, look, I know how to cook. I can get through this one pretty easy. So I took the class, and it was very easy I mean, for me because I literally grew up cooking. Yeah. And then one day this guy comes in. His name is Ian Barthley, pretty large uh, black guy. Um, everyone thought he was a police officer. And so no one would talk to him. <laughs> so he was sort of standing there. And it turns out he's actually this incredibly talented pastry chef okay. from uh, Antigua. Um, he went to the CIA, and he worked in D.C. at a restaurant called Timothy Dean's. And Timothy Dean's at the time was a really well-known restaurant in D.C. Um, he was the understudy for Jean-Louis Paladin. Mm-hmm. And it was the first fine-dining restaurant where all the chefs were black. Oh, and wow. he was a pastry chef. Wow. And he was coming in. He was working for this program called CCAP, which is still uh, around. It's based out of New York. 
and he was recruiting kids to mentor for these cooking competitions. So he sort of watched me cook and he approached me. He was like, hey, look, would you be interested in this? And ultimately, if you come from where I come from, you don't really trust anyone who's giving you anything because we I just know. know that no one has things right. to give. Right. So it's like, okay, what do you want out of me, right? right. right. So I was a little skeptical, but I went along with it. My, my family was okay. And what Ian did was he sort of took me under his wing, and, you know, maybe two or three times a week. We'd go to his house and he'd show me like classic knife cuts. You know, how to, you know, this is what mirepoix is. This is how you make chicken stock. This is how you do this. Like very classical French sort of basic cooking techniques and recipes and trained me for these cooking competitions, which I went on to win one and won a, um, a full scholarship to the CIA. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. um, did you, <clears throat> so upon graduating high school, did you go straight to the CIA? Did you work in a restaurant first or was it, you went to the Yeah, trip? I had already been working in, in I guess restaurants is a stretch. I um, I was you know I mean Dustin worked Dustin worked in a sub shop man. That's like yeah, whatever so, your first job. Is. Well, I did multiple. So I, I worked at McDonald's when I was thirteen, and illegally because in DC you're supposed to be fourteen with your parents' permission to work. I think I, I they didn't just didn't care. Um, <laughs> I got fired from McDonald's, um, and then um, well, why'd you get fired? Well, um, so I was thirteen, and you're sort of a, yeah, well, a bit of a jackass, 13, yeah. yeah. And I was working the drive-thru, and a lady was just, yeah, I don't know how people get so worked up at fast food restaurants, but she was really angry with me for some reason. And it's like, we're talking about burgers and fries here. Like, <laughs> I mean, what can make you so angry? And she was really rude to me, and obviously I was 13, and, and I was I just sort of mirrored that energy, which you're not allowed to do, and I was like swiftly let go, <laughs> which, was, which, which was sort of sucked because I, at that time, I, I didn't have any responsibilities or bills. So I was using all my, my money to buy cool shoes. So that took away all my sneaker budget. So it was just gone. <laughs> Blew your sneaker that was, budget. That was an issue. That was an issue immediately. So I got another job working. If you know in the, in the, in the mall, in the food course, is this place where they give you the samples of like teriyaki chicken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I went in and I, was, I applied. I got a job in one of these places, which is a really cool experience. Uh, because um, there's two Chinese guys working in the kitchen, neither spoke English, and they just give you this stuff. And they show you how to do it and just go go, and like like julienning like like chicken breasts for like a thousand port you know people like with a cleaver and you just go right and you start learning these things how to move fast and it actually was a lot of fun. They were very funny guys. We didn't speak the same language, but we got along really well. Yeah, they would always you know they yeah it's like a kid they play grab ass with you and so you know like it's, <laughs> it's a really funny environment. You right, know, these two were very older Chinese guys and me this like little half black half Jewish kid. You know at that point I had you know cornrows down to my back. And I was like, you know, 275 pounds, this big, you know, it, it was just really, it was, it was a fun time. Um, so my first like job in a professional kitchen was a Lawrence program. They got me a job at the Four Seasons in Georgetown in DC. Okay. And I started just uh, as a prep cook. Um, and it really taught me a lot about how, like, how kitchens really work. Like at a, at a very high level, how they're organized, how tight they are to deal with the, that level of stress. So I was going to school in the morning and I would take a bus directly from school and go straight there and work until one in the morning, come home, do my homework. And and by then I would gotten on a better life track. So I went from dropping out to like having like a 4.0 and like by the next semester, like I just, yeah, yeah. just really hyper-focused and, and, um, and I was really committed to it because I knew I had an opportunity. Um, and then after that internship, I was able to go to the CIA. Okay. So yeah. what's it like going to tell me about uh, your experience at the CIA and, um, and uh, Stephen uh, Colpan was he uh, one of your instructors? Or? He was. He was my wine instructor. Okay. Um, so I went. I, I took it very seriously. You know, I was the first of my grandma's grandkids to go to college, um, and so that was a big deal. And I didn't want to screw it up. So, you know, obviously stipulation of a scholarship, you got to keep GPA high. Yeah. Um, so that was very hard because it was. Um, 
it was all very new. And the CI is, is um, I don't know what the curriculum is now. Back then it was very, very like super rigorous, mm-hmm. um, you know, very intense, uh, very stern. It was like military school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I didn't want to screw it up because I, I, I definitely could not afford the tuition. So I had needed to keep my scholarship. So I like really um, took a deep dive in and I took it very seriously. And I'd say for the next, you know, four years of my life, like I, you know, my entire life was encapsulated with um, studying classical cuisine. Um, then when I was 19, I graduated from the, the associates program. And then I got approached by um, a chef by the name of Xavier LaRue, um, who was, uh, a, you know, he cooked in New York very early on, which was abnormal for a French chef at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, he worked at Le Pavillon, the original Le Pavillon in New York, which Daniel Bellu just reopened. Um, and then he was at Le Co Basque and uh, really classical restaurants. And he was an instructor. He hired me to be like his sous chef in this restaurant called the Escoffier Room, which was at the CIA. They changed it now. It's the Bocuse restaurant. And it was very, very, very old school Escoffier cuisine, which I, I, you know, I really loved. And uh, it was like a crash course in, you know, running a kitchen. Um, I was 19, managing people like twice my age. But I was like in it. Like, I, I mean, I could, I walked around with a, a copy of the Repertoire de la Cuisine in my pocket, mm-hmm. just studying classical garnishes and techniques, and, and I was just in it, and I, I, and I really loved it. I still love cooking. Um, and then I decided to stay on and get my bachelor's degree in hospitality management, so I did that, and then came and moved down to New York. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, and I actually met in, yeah. in my wine class. Okay. And again, that was something I'd never interacted with because I'd never, I'd never seen a bottle of wine. Right. You know, um, so I was very intimidated by that. It was, it's a notoriously a very difficult class because everyone who's taking it are young. Everyone's 19 years old. And no one's, you know, a wine professional. So, you know. Or even legal to drink. Yeah. But a lot of people like, they maybe they had seen wine around, but they didn't know anything about wine. So we're sort of all right. even Same playing. level. Yeah, yeah. It's a level. Yeah. And I, uh, I took it really seriously and I got like, I think the second highest uh, great score in the class because again I had to keep my scholarship I had no choice and we, you know Culpin and I really hit it off I liked him a lot he was a, a very welcoming guy um, very demanding right like mm-hmm. he you know you were not gonna you know BS around like he was very serious but he he he, he it was a very his, his energy is very comforting and very open and welcoming so there was no stupid question kind of guy Got it. and that really helped me to um, learn a lot and then ultimately he helped me sort of sign up to, to get a a scholarship to go spend a little time in Italy, and I, which I traveled around with him in a group for a little while. What was that like, man? Because I mean, because yeah. I imagine you're coming from DC. It was the first time out of the United States, first Absolutely. passport. It was my, oh yeah, it was my first time ever leaving the country. It was nuts. I mean, I was thrilled. I mean, you um, the opportunity to see how other people live in the world. I mean, wine was the reason why we were there, but that was like fine. You know, how much are you going to learn in, in a few weeks? It was more about like just seeing um, the culture mm-hmm. and how people interact with each other, how they live. It was mind blowing to me. Like I'd never seen. It. It's like it, it was like living inside of a movie. You know the things that you see on TV. It's like wow, they actually. You know, it's like the the grunt, like the nanas out there, like with you know with the pasta and yeah. the whole thing, and like this guy. You know, it's like they're like a, it's like a set. Like these are not real people. Like no, it's people. They live like this. You know, and it was just incredible for me. And I, I it, it sort of set this whole um, mindset. Of I just wanted to. I just wanted to travel nonstop. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to explore and interact with people, and um, it was an incredible experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's uh, uh, that's dope. That's yeah. really dope. Um and especially at a younger age, um I mean I, I think I didn't go to Europe till I was like forty years old. So yeah. like at a younger age, I mean and I and also I used to work with kids from the inner city. So mm-hmm. a lot of kids like don't even leave D C like or don't live in their town. So 100%. like so like I could see how that would just like just 
like you said, yeah, see how other people live. I mean, it's it's very humbling, right? And it's it's a little scary, right? Yeah. Like that first time getting on a plane, like that long flight, and like landing in a place where you can't read anything and no one speaks your language, and you end up like 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 the most quiet I've ever been. You're just quiet, just sort of observing everything, taking everything in, trying to. And you, you know, like if you're you're raised in cities and street, like you adapt pretty quickly to people's like behaviors and things like that, and sort of how to maneuver. Right. Um, but it was really, really eye opening. Um, very, very special experience. So it was my our first night there. We were so excitable, and we, none of us were 21. We were, I was 20. You know, a few other kids. Everyone was around that age, and I had um, a Maro for the first time. Okay. <laughs> and I and I, I really loved it. It was a Verna. I remember, and I kept ordering another one, another one, another one. Because it has a little bit of sugar, you know. Obviously, there's a bitterness to it. So I didn't, I didn't really, I took for granted how much alcohol was in it. And this is a true story. And we're sitting there, and you know, you have it in the meal. And I woke up, I, I fell asleep at the table, and I woke up. That was my first time experiencing things like jet lag, right? Like, you don't know what that <laughs> right, is. Right, right. And so and you're you're young, so you can just feel like you just go forever. Yeah. I'll just push it. And I woke up uh, at like two o'clock in the morning uh, at the table by myself. It was out in the courtyard. I, the restaurant's still there because those restaurants never change. And I can show you where we were sitting at the table. And I woke up, everyone was gone. They thought it was hilarious. There's no crime there. No, no one's going to yeah, do anything to you. So I was, I'm like, here, I woke up in, Mon- in Montalcino. And I'm in Montalcino, like, you know, like by myself, like, what the hell? And I had to, like, um, so it's one of these hotels where you turn your key on in, into the front when you leave. It's like a huge key. Right. So I had to, like, break into the window to get into my <laughs> hotel. This is my first night ever abroad. Like, it was so much fun. And it's such a fun that's, trip. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. So after the trip and you graduated from CIA, uh, you moved to New York. Where did you uh, hone your skills? Where, did you, where was your first gig you know, in New York? Well, it, it, was, it was interesting because I, uh, you know, the dream was to come down and, 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 and be a cook here. And I, um, when I was at the CIA, you know, I was one of those kids every weekend. I was on the Metro North coming down to do a stage and we staged everywhere. You know, I um, we were at Alain Ducasse, the Essex house back at the time when that was open. John George, Danielle. Uh, I mean, we were just everywhere. We were just working free, just learning, learning. When I got here, it's when I sort of got hit over the head with the fact that, you know, the full-time jobs don't pay that much. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I, you know, here I am, you know, first of my family to go to college. I have a bachelor's degree and, and you know, quite a bit of knowledge under my belt. And a little bit of experience. Yeah, I worked in some some good kitchens, and um, and I was like talking to my family. And they're like, "Well, you know, has a work, the job market." I'm like, "Yeah, like I can get a job at the place I want to work, but I'm gonna make minimum wage." Mm-hmm. They're like, "What?" And I remember one of my cousins going, "Bro, you could have just stayed here and worked at Home Depot for that, <laughs> you know? Like, why'd you go to college?" And and it was a very difficult thing to have to cope with. It was a real life situation. Yeah. So I cooked around a little bit, and then finally I said, "This isn't making any sense." My you know, my grandmother passed away. And I was, um, I had to help support my sister and her kids. Mm. Um, and, you know, making minimum wage wasn't going to cut it. It just wasn't going to do it. It wasn't a decision I got to make. So I took a job working in the dining room to make more money, frankly, mm-hmm. was 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 the reason. So I took a job working for um, at Craft Steak when Tom Calico opened that down in the meatpacking district. And I worked there for a little while. And then um, the CIA called again and had opportunity to go in, um, to go spend some time in Japan. They were they got hired pretty much by the Japanese military to, uh, with the American military in Japan, to send a team over to train the chefs how to cook um, Western cuisines, because frankly I think they were just tired of eating Japanese food, mm-hmm. and they wanted, you know, because a lot of chefs there they don't that that's what they cook, you know, and almost exclusively, and so we it was six of us got hired to to go and spend a month in Japan, 
going to a couple bases around like Atsugi and so forth in around Tokyo, training these these cooks um, how to make um, French, Italian, Spanish, some Middle Eastern cuisines, really cuisine, things like that. And that was a great experience. So I had to leave that job to go do that. Okay. And then I came back and I was unemployed with no money living in Manhattan. That's um, not a good situation. It's not a good situation, and, and and without a family that could really help much. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know. yeah. It's you know, I didn't have a family I can call. Like, hey, I need like ten grand to float. Like, no one had that. No one had that kind of money. Um. So I was, I was, I was really blessed to uh, have some friends that were working at Per Se at the time. Okay. And they're like, hey, look, you know, we really need food runners, kitchen service. And I was like, look, I'm not qualified to work there. You know, I've worked in front of the house for like four months of my life. You know, and fine dining. He's like, well, just apply. I said, I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I applied. Interview went really well, and ultimately they 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 liked my work ethic. They liked how much I knew about food, and they didn't have to train someone because those menus change all the time. You have mm-hmm. to understand food to actually do well. So I got a job there, and you know before I got my first paycheck, I had three hundred bucks in my name, and I pretty much ate tuna fish sandwiches until I got my first paycheck. I got a bunch of Wonder Bread, cans of tuna fish, and I was living at one hundred fifty seventh and Broadway, and I was just eating tuna fish sandwiches for like two weeks until they paid me. I couldn't make that first paycheck. Whew. I was like, I felt like a king when it got, when it when it hit the hit the bank account. I was like, man, I'm gonna go sit down and have a dinner somewhere. Like, I can't afford anything expensive, but like, just somewhere where someone brings me a plate of food. You know, that that was a luxury. Um, and I worked there for, um, I guess it was almost a year and a half, maybe just over. Do you remember that first meal you went to? I'm just curious. Um, you know what? I do. It was uh, I don't remember the name of the restaurant, but I know where it is. Okay. I I um. It was like Cafe du Soleil or something like that. It was a it was a it was a bistro. Okay. It was an Upper West Side that um, they cooked uh, Provencal um, uh, cuisine, and I sat down and I had a buoy base. Oh wow! And I had a buoy base, and uh, and uh, I mean, look at you dropping out of high school, and yeah. then now you have a buoy base in Manhattan. Man. Oh yeah, I, I felt like a king. I mean, it was it was it was not it's not a high end place. The buoy base wasn't that exceptional, but it was like good enough. And it was like twenty five bucks or something like that, and I just felt like a king, yeah. just sitting there. I, you know, you better be. I ate all the bread on the table, like everything <laughs> they brought me. I ate all of it. <laughs> just like this is, like this is such an expensive meal for me, and um, yeah, and, and then I just, you know, for me, I, I just sort of promised myself that was never gonna happen again, and I got uber focused on my career of, of working in, in, in service, um, and, and per se was the perfect place to do that, to train, to learn um, the finer ways to to, to to run a dining room. And it was an incredible experience, you know, very intense, um, but a lot of fun at the same time. Would you, you know, as you say that, like, you know, um, talk a little bit about, I, I don't, I don't think people understand like the intensity of like a per se, like the fine dining, like, like everything being iron and no specks of, uh, yeah. bla- I mean, like talk a little bit about that, you know? Well, it's to the T. It's like, it's like, uh, every detail is incredibly well thought out. You know, we question everything. Um, you know, the, the first you, your person, you have to be like meticulous. Everything is starched and clean and pristine shaved. And yeah, yeah it's like to the T shoes polished, you know, the, the, the restaurant itself. It's like when they built that restaurant, it was like, you know, no expense to spare. Like they got the best of the best. Um, so you had to take care of it. You know, all the tablecloths were, were I mean, the best frette linens you could buy. And, and you know, everything is, is pristinely ironed. So teams come in hours before, uh, vacuuming, cleaning the carpets. Everything is polished to the tea. Even in the kitchen, the pipes that, that water runs through, mm-hmm. they have someone down polishing the pipes. What? No, it's crazy. I mean, I believe it, but I, 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 I mean, I like, think, like, like, as... 
as we as we're moving forward and people want to get into this world, I mean, it's it's serious shit, man. And it's very very hard work. It's, yeah, it's not glamorous at all. Yeah. Um, and you know, and 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 you know, the kitchen was wasn't any different. Like you weren't the the, the cooks weren't allowed to be messy. Like they had to have you know starch clean whites shaving clean like it was a very precise environment and when thomas came in one of the first things he would do is he rolled a pass up and he had tvs up in the kitchen where you could see in the french laundry and he would pull out and he would clean behind the tv and he would just he would just sort of meticulous and like everything had to be pristinely clean and um but the intensity levels are very high if you look at you know just the amount of dishes that came out of the kitchen if you're doing 90 covers everyone's getting around you know, 20 plates, right? It's about, you know, it's 1,800 plates just leaving the kitchen with like six people cooking. Like that's, that's insane. And in, in, in everything is meticulously cut and, and prepped. And, you know, and then you, the menu you see, what most people don't know is there's actually for every menu item, there's like two other options backing that up just in case you don't like that. Mm. So there's another option immediately. So, you know, we would have to memorize these menus down to the T, every, every ingredient, every sauce, um, every farm that everything came from. But then there was other dishes behind it. So you're actually memorizing like three menus. And you had to know it. And, you know, we had three strikes throughout. Jonathan Benno was a chef. And at the pass, if he asked you what a sauce was or what an ingredient was, what a farm was, you didn't know. Like one strike, strike three, you went home. They would just cut you. It's no you joke. Know? And if that happened a couple of times, you got fired. Yeah. And ultimately, most people didn't make it through training. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I saw grown men like crying in the middle of service. Yeah. Um, and you know, it takes a certain type of person that wants that challenge for themselves, that wants to learn how to execute at an abnormally high level under, um, unsustainable amount of pressure, but then keep coming back every day and doing it, you know? Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's like being a professional athlete, right? It's like being, Mm -hmm. it's like being in the NFL. It's like, you know, um, or NBA people. Like I said, I used to work with kids and everybody's like, oh, they're going to go pro. I'm like, man, listen, everybody, it's a whole, like, everybody in the NFL, 4-4, defensive tackles are on 4-4. Like, everybody's fast. You, mean, yeah. you could be fast in high school. Correct. You know, Correct. it's like, or you could be a good cook, but, like, that level every day. And, and I love what you said. Like, it, it's someone who wants to subject themselves to that. Like, you have to be, it ha- you have to want to take on that challenge of yourself i think it's yeah really important. I, I you know one of our, our um heads of one of our companies once says you got to be a special kind of crazy to want to <laughs> do this kind of stuff yeah, you know yeah. um um yeah but you but, you know the, the interesting thing is when you start to crave that type of environment you you know you by nature find yourself surrounded by those type of people which is very fulfilling yeah there's no lazy people working yeah. there yeah. you know so you you're naturally you become used to being around ambitious Hyper intelligent, very committed people, yeah. and that's just your culture, that's your world. You don't know how to live any other way. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, yeah. So, where did you um, uh, move on to after your time at Per Se? Yes, yeah, so I moved to DC. Um, okay. I came back to help, you know, with my family. Um, and Eric Zebald, who was the chef de cuisine at the French Laundry for about nine years, moved to DC and opened a restaurant called Cities Inn. And um, you know, similar philosophies how they operated, but I, I actually liked. Eric's food a little better because it was it was it wasn't so um, like touched. It was uh, you know definitely more ingredient driven. Okay. It wasn't trying to be as dainty as the food at the laundry. It was much more soulful. Um, you know, Eric's from Iowa. Um, so not all the big tweezers. Like, yeah, they didn't do a lot of that. Like yeah. there, you know, it was it was it was food was more in its natural form. You know, Eric was I'd say to this day was the greatest chef I've ever worked with. Like his ability to understand. Um, flavors and how to use food 
in its very natural state without having to manipulate it to add complexity and texture and flavor in the dish. It's unparalleled to anyone I've ever worked with. But he did it in a very um, humble, just sort of matter-of-fact way. He just knew how to do it. He was a technician. And he was very, very, I mean, very old school in his ways. I mean, the guy would, you know, he ran a very successful restaurant. He worked line all the time. Mm. And he would occasionally work with the cook and he would do the mise en place with him and take over the whole and have the guy watch him work his station to show him how to do it better. Like, a lot of chefs these days can't do that, you know. And, and you know, Eric wasn't a kid at the time. He's, you know, in his early 40s, you know. And Eric just had really bad back problems, but he didn't care. Like, I was, he's back there. Polished dance goes, super, you know, blue apron, always pristine, and his station always saying pristine. And the guy was incredible to watch cook. When you watch a great chef cook, it's like watching him dance. It's a brilliant thing to watch. Mm. It's mesmerizing to watch. It's uh, the hyper focus and the ability to move with very intentional movements, and but but actually they don't move very fast. They actually move very slow, and everything is very intentional. It's incredible to watch. I love watching it, and but very few people can do it well. And he was that way. I loved working with him. But when I was there, I met Andy Myers. Okay. And Andy Myers was was the wine director. Um, and Andy was also very old school. He used to have this policy where he wouldn't remember your name until you were there for six months. That was just, that was just his policy. <laughs> yeah. He was an old school wrestling guy. He's like, look, I've been in this business so long. I've seen so many people come Oh, right. And come and go. Right. He's like, look. He goes, I'll remember your name when you're here for six months. And he would say that. <laughs> Which, awesome. If you know Andy, you're like, yep. You know, and, and you sort of got to have respect for those kind of people who are just like, look, you know, we're a family here. You've got to earn your way in. And that's what it was. It was very much a family environment. Dinner only, five days a week. Everyone worked every shift together. Everyone spent their time off together. It was a family. And after about six months, we started hitting off. And I, you know, I... I I sat down with Mark Pulitzer, who was the GM at the time, and he said, like, look, Carlton, like you're doing an incredible job, but if you really want to advance, you need to learn more about wine because that's a big part of service and what we do. And at that point, I was just focused on the, 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 the mechanics of being a server and, and, and it just, you know, learning how to take care of people. And, uh, and he gave me a hard talk. It was, about, it was about business. He was like, look, he says, Carlton, you can only sell a guy, you know, so much steak. Right? <laughs> the guy's going to buy one steak. Right, right. And he's like, what's the most expensive steak? It's like $100, right? He goes, well, that same, that same guest can, can spend five, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars on wine. And at that point, I'd never seen a bottle of wine that expensive. Yeah. I didn't know. Wow. You yeah. know, so yeah. I was like, wow, that's very interesting. So I went up to Andy and he's like, go talk to Andy. And I'm like, oh, I gotta talk to this guy. He's very Andy's um, if I were to guess his height, maybe six two, six three, tall thinking guy. His entire body's covered in tattoos. He's a death metal drummer, wears like old ratty slayer t-shirts. <laughs> but but he's a super, super smart guy and great palate. Right. Very intimidating. Big long goatee. So I went up to him and I was like, hey, look, you know, Mark told me to talk to you that I need to learn more about wine and if you can give me some guidance. He's like, yeah, all right. He's like, he wrote down on a piece of paper. He's like, here, here go read these five books. And I was like, okay. What so were I the go. books? It, they were very classical. It was all the reference books, like Sotheby's, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Atlas of Wine, yada, like all the classical, you know, books that everyone studied back then. You know, now everything's online. People still buy the books, obviously, but they're all like Hugh Johnson's Wine Atlas, things like that. And uh, when so it was I, on the world, would you have Kevin's book in it? I, you know what, I, I forget, I forget if it was on there. Mm. But these are all the thing was, yeah, there were maybe it was, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, but back then again, but, uh, but, but it was mostly Brits though, because I mean, you know, at the time, correct. yeah, because like mm -hmm. I had Kevin, I mean, I had Kevin in last week, and mm -hmm. uh, he's the godfather of wine education in America. I agree. You know I agree. what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but I think he might have uh, by, by that time his book was out and very well known. But yeah, but it was like Hugh Johnson, mm -hmm. you know, um, Johnson Robinson, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and 
So I went out and bought the books. That's that's when like um, online shopping had just become a thing. So I had them shipped to my house, which was a big deal. And I spent the you know the following months reading them. And I came back to him. I was like, hey, the guy read all those books. He's like, you read all those books? I said, yeah. He goes, well, because those are reference books. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He's like, they're not. You don't read. It's not a novel. You don't read them. I was like, well, you told me to read them. He's like, well, look, if you can read that those books, they're dry as hell. You'll be okay. And he's like, did you like it? I said, I was really intrigued by it actually. He's like, okay. He's like, all right. Well, so he's like, now, you know, we're going to talk about tasting wine. And then that night he had a couple guys over that were, um, um, training for, for their, their, um, their certified exam for the court. And he's like, won't you just sit in and just watch, you know, what the team's doing. And they were from restaurants all around the city. Cities and was like the hub where everyone came to blind taste. But it wasn't until like one o'clock in the morning because we finished service, cleaned up, and then the blind tasting. Wow, you know, and they would come over and and I was I was like amazed, you know, like you've ever watched, you know, someone go through the grid and do six and twenty five, you know, it's one it's it's hard to to sort of really comprehend what you're watching because you don't really know what's going on, but it's amazing to hear it go, and ultimately you sort of think I'm a little cynical. I'm like, all right, this is like a hat trick, you know, like how can you even. How can you look and smell and taste? I don't even know what it is. Like how you know? And he sort of just took me under his wing and just put me down that 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 track. And I I really um, love the at that time what was in that restaurant. It was a bit of camaraderie and we sort of connected over that. And it was our lives. Same thing I did with food. I did now I was now doing with wine, which are, they have, they have so much in common that it was very natural to me. And that was all I did with all my free time. You know, I walked around with a duffel bag with all my books. And I went, I woke up every morning, I went to the Starbucks, the Starbucks across the street from Cities Inn, and I studied there till 2 o'clock in the morning. I came in, I helped Andy lug cases around, put my suit on, did service, blind taste at night, went home, studied some more. And I just like, I was just addicted to it. Yeah. And that was sort of like my entry into wine as, as something to study. Yeah. So given what you shared earlier about your struggles initially with school, like what allowed you to drill down and just focus and study like that like what i mean was it something just the way you were raised or, or did a light bulb go off what what was really caused this big this paradigm shift well i'd say it was you know i think there was a number of uh contributing factors one is one thing i'll say about my grandmother she had an insane work ethic so my grandmother not only did she raise her kids she raised almost all of her grandkids um, she was a pastor of a church, which if you're, you know, in a tough neighborhood means you're also a therapist, uh, you're a chef, you're in a catering company, but she also worked at a, at a funeral home as well, full time. And she just nonstop. So I was raised around that type of energy. Like okay. she didn't do a whole lot of just hanging out in the house. Like there was none of that, you know? So I, I knew what it meant to just work really hard all the time. But I also was very hyper aware that I'd been given an opportunity very early on that no one else in my neighborhood or family had been giving. And I'd always promised myself to take it as far as I could take it. Um, and at that point, I was, you know, the breadwinner for my family. So I also was, you know, helping to support my family. So it was just sort of, there was a lot of factors that were just, um, that had motivated me to, to, to just do as much as I could, as fast as I could do it, you know. Oh, but, but, but I also loved the culture of wine. You know, I obviously we loved drinking wine, but it was, it was the people that I was meeting. Right. It's you know, people. It's, it's not just the beverage. It's like not, it is. It, it yeah. really is. Like when I got into wine, I was like, oh, it was just. It was an elevation. And you said something really like, and at, and at the level you came in high dine, like you're, you know, you're you're around hyper intelligent people. You know, people who go to Ivy League schools and then want to go into service. Or, yeah. You know, like yeah. Or or or, 
you know, it, it's a really, it's a different, it's different, it's rare air. No, no, it, it absolutely, it's a very unique um, product in, in the way that it facilitates the way people interact with each other. And well what I also say what was really great, and I give Andy a lot of credit for this, is he really um, put me in a lot of positions to travel more. So like distributors would come with trips or producers and like he would go on an occasion, he'd be like, no, 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 you need to like take this guy. And at that point I was, I was a server and he would, he knew, he knew I was taking it very seriously. I was very committed to it. So like, you know, I would go to like Austria and Germany, you know, like fully paid trip. And I was like, this is nuts. So I did a few of those and it was just, again, it kept me so intrigued in, in, in wine as a culture. And that's what I was really addicted to. And I also loved the the personal competitive aspect of studying for the court, which was, you know, you're not competing with anyone else, right? It's, it's yourself, right? It's like, um, am I, have I learned more than I, I, I knew yesterday? And it's, 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 you know, you got to keep yourself accountable, right? And the other day, it's like, did I do the work myself that I study? Am I committed to learning as much as I, I want to learn uh, to achieve this thing, which I think is, is probably even more important than the end result is like that, um, the self-discipline and commitment to something that you're passionate about enough to do, which is pretty, pretty boring and pretty gruesome way to interact with something you're, you know, it's, it's not fun, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. and, um, yeah, I, I really love the culture. I was very addicted to it. You know what? Um, we need to take a quick break. Um, but we'll be back in just a minute with, uh, more Carlton. So, uh, hang on. We'll be right back. Everybody. Hey, Hey, what's up? It's MJ again. Listen, we all love a sexy wine label, but the back label is more important. Do you want to know how to score a great bottle of wine every time? Turn that bottle around and look for the Skernick Wines logo. Skernick Wines has been one of my favorite portfolios since I came into the business over 20 years ago. Whether it's a $10 bottle or a $100 bottle, you can count on Skernick Wines to deliver every time. And it's not just about wine. They also have one of the finest portfolios of craft spirits. Make sure you go to their website, www.skernick.com, and check out their ever-evolving library of cocktail recipes. Listen, I don't say this lightly. Skernick is a name you can trust when it comes to wine and spirits. Okay, um, we're back with Carlton McCoy. So <laughs> we're talking about uh, commitment focus, that laser focus, um, uh, and uh, holding yourself accountable. Um so what did uh, Eric and Andy say to you that, that really encouraged you to, to pursue wine and, and the, the, your certification with the Court of Master Somalis? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's uh, really small things that people say that, um, that have a massive impact, which is like someone telling you that, that you sort of trust their opinion, go, oh, you can do this, right? Like something simple as that. Like someone says, like, if, if you've never been told before, that you're capable of something and someone who you sort of look up to, not sort of, you absolutely look up to, says, hey, look, you can do this. That's like super empowering. You're like, well, if you think I can do this and I should do it, right. you know? Right, right, I never, I never, in looking back, I never once questioned whether or not I was capable of it. I just, I just trusted Andy. He was like, yeah, you can do this. And he's like, I'm on my path. I was like, you're absolutely capable of doing this. So I just trust him. I just did it. Yeah. Like blindly just went, like, like right into the deep end and did it. You know, and Eric, I'll say, is very old school in, 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 in his approach to wine as far as a chef. You know, the old chefs knew an enormous amount about wine. 
and I don't mean the old chefs, like it was just a generation ago, like Daniel Balut, very, very knowledgeable about wine, very engaged with it. You know, Eric was a huge collector. I mean, he had a I mean, massive collection of wine, like like way more wine than I ever had, like like a ton. And yeah. we you know when he was at the laundry, he collected old Napa. So some of my first great old bottles were from his cellar and it was old Napa. You know, he had he actually bought a lot of old Burgess. He bought a lot of old Diamond Creek. Um, a lot of the houses, you know, that we love, mm-hmm. he you know, at the night he'd bring one or he'd bring, you know, he'd be like, Oh, you know, when I, once I started to get really sort of um pretentious and all-knowing like a lot of us young Samoyes get <laughs> uh, you know it's like we pass a couple of jam drinks of bottles like oh I know and he goes what do you think about Behringer I was like oh you know sort of thing like Man, being like this young song know, yeah. he's like okay and then he brought in like an early 80s like uh, Bank, was it Bancroft Ranch Bancroft Merlot Ranch. yep Merlot. and the wine was insane he used to blind taste some wines I'll say that and the wine was insane and uh, you know it just it just kept me humble uh, one, because when you're working for a chef who knows more about wine than you do, that's humbling in of itself. And he did. He knew a lot about wine, legitimately. He studied it. He drank the great wines. He owned them. He drank them all the time. It was great working for a restaurant where the wine culture was very rich. Everyone was learning. Everyone was drinking great wine, talking about it, selling it. Our guests, you know, all the guests came there for wine. Um, and they were just really, really supportive. Um, you know, whenever I needed to leave to do some educational thing, they were very supportive. You know, Andy led the charge. You know, we had a number of young small, young servers. They were all going through the court. And um, well, I don't think that needs to be everyone's path. Like for us yeah. at the time, that was the culture. And it, it was yeah. it was a, it was really, really great for me because I don't think I would have sort of committed myself without having like something to work towards. Mm-hmm. That was very important to me. Yeah, I think yeah. it's important to know, know thyself. And also I want to say, I mean, because I, I, I used to work for a nonprofit in the education sector and something you said just kind of, so everybody wants to have mentorship programs and I understand mentorship, but like there is a true, there's like, there's true mentorship and there's mentorship. You got true yeah. mentorship. True yeah. mentorship is when someone sees something in you mm-hmm. and in their mind, you don't even know them or they just adopt you. And and that's what I'm hearing in your story. Like yeah. you're going on this trip here, you're going there. But I've, had, I've been very blessed to have multiple people do that to me in my life. And I was, you know, it's it's the thing about mentorship is the mentee has to be in a place to receive it. Exactly. That's a, that's a, that that's thank and, you for saying that. And that that's a it's, it, it is a two way street. And I was because of the way I was raised and by my grandmother. And um, you know, it's it's my grandmother used to always say, "Children are seen and not heard." Right? In, right. in that idea of like, shut up and listen. You don't know what you're talking about. At a young age, it just kept you like paying attention. I hung around old people my whole my whole childhood, and you know I and I just I don't know what led to it. I was very aware of the opportunities that I was getting through this mentorship, and I just did what they told me to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think at the back of that, when you're raised like that, my mother's really religious. She was Joe Witness, so very strict. Um, yeah, there's a respect when you're raised like that. So yeah, so and 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 and. That you know, it all starts with respect. I believe, like mm-hmm. if you can respect, like you said, I didn't question what they said. They, yeah, I did what they did. Yeah. So they 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 were they were like they're like seeing something in you. Um, you uh, went to uh, the Bobby Stuckey proven grounds of Somalia. So talk about going yeah. to Colorado, man. So I was I was at home one day and I got a call, um, and it was Sabato Cigaria. Uh, master sommelier now um, but he was a food and beverage director at the Little Nell at the time and he called and he said hey look you know we um, you know Dustin Wilson's here and he's about to leave um, he was leaving to go work at RN74 at the time in San Francisco it was a long time ago yep. 
and you talked uh, about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and um, he says, you know, we'd love you to come out and interview for the job. And I was very happy where I was. I mean, mm-hmm. I was I was close to my family. Uh, we had such a great family atmosphere at the restaurant. I was learning so much. Um, you know, it was just I was well, you know, why would I leave? You know, especially not to live, as as I said, just in the middle of nowhere. I think I said, <laughs> I said, why would I leave in the middle of nowhere? You know. Anyway, he's like, okay. He's like, well, you know, is there anyone you'd recommend? And I had a friend named Chase Dubay who had worked with me at City's Inn and was working at um, Cyrus in, in Hillsburg, which was a really, really great restaurant with a great wine program at the time. And um, um, I said, you should call uh, Chase. He's he's very, very smart. And um, I'm not sure where he is in the career. Maybe he wants the opportunity or not. He says, okay, great, thanks. He called Chase, and he didn't tell Chase who recommended him. He just says, look, someone recommended you, and we'd love you to um, at least take a look at it. And he says, well, you know, I'm really happy here at Cyrus. You know, I um, got this great program, beautiful place to live. He says, okay, who would you, you know, can you recommend anyone? He goes, this guy named Carlton in D.C. <laughs> so he's like, we sort of revolving each other. Right. So anyway, so, you know, uh, Sabato actually took, it was a very interesting approach. Um, I, I didn't know this at the time, but he had worked with Andy at the Interlittle Washington like a decade prior. He called Andy. He says, Andy, he says, look, this is a very odd call, but I'm calling you let you know I'm trying to poach one of your employees. And it's it would be a great opportunity for him. I think you know that. And I need you to convince him to interview. And Andy called me into his office and was like, look, Salvatore called you. I was like, yeah. He's like, I think you should go. Go talk to him. He's like, Worst, worst comes worst. You get a free trip to Aspen. You've never been to Aspen. I said, absolutely not. He says, uh, go enjoy Aspen for a couple of days and, you know, if nothing comes of it, then guess what? We go back to work and then that's it. And I went out. Uh, I flew out to Aspen and incredible experience. I land. If you ever land in Aspen, this beautiful mountain valley in the airport is slapped in the middle of no, it. No, I said, my, my black nuts. ass has not been to Aspen yet. Been <laughs> no, to Denver, but... It's no, a, it's nuts. Yeah. It's nothing like it. One, it's a little scary. No, I'm a sure, because it's all those little airports. Yeah. It's mountains and shit. Yeah. And I landed, and I get off the plane, and it starts snowing. Like, they, like, turn on, like, cue snow, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and so it's Because it doesn't snow a lot in D.C. I mean, you live in New yeah. York, but, like, yeah, growing on up... And off, yeah, all, you yeah, know, but yeah. not like this. Yeah. And I was like, this is incredible. And, I, you know, I arrived, car picks me up, and I'm standing You were actually in a snow globe. Bro, it was a setup, man. Like, it was like, like the, like the Truman Show or something. It was just like the Truman Show. Like, okay, he's just landed. Cue, snow. Cue the snow. Cue the snow. The car picks him up. So I checked in a little now, and and everyone was so incredible. They were so nice, but so competent. And um, and I really, I, I remember having that impression of like these people are really smart. They're killing it here, but they're really nice people. And I'm from the city. Everyone just got you don't, a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they were just really, really nice people. Like almost too happy. Yeah. And you're like, what? Like what's going on here? It was like it was like um like get out or something. You know, we're just like yeah. All right, this is a, they're like this is a setup. <laughs> like everyone was just so happy, and um you know, and I ended up having dinner with Sabato. We went out and we spent some time together and really talked about what the job was and what the potential was. And I, I uh, on, on the way out, I was boarding the plane. I called Andy, and he picked up, and he's like, he goes, at least give me a month. I said, okay. <laughs> so I put him a month's notice, yeah. and I moved to Aspen. I started, my first day was Thanksgiving night. Wow. Uh, 2010. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was it was a, a really interesting experience because, you know, I'd never lived outside of the East Coast, really. I lived in Mississippi for like nine months cooking on a in a casino there. Ooh, I was a line cook at a casino there. You. That was a pretty fun experience. Because <laughs> 3 Six Mafia had just became okay. like, <laughs> a, a, like a big deal. And I was living in, in with a good buddy of mine from from Michigan. Mm-hmm. This is when I was in college, and um, you know, 
I was working in Tunica, Mississippi. It's about 45 minutes outside of Memphis. So Three Six Mafia would be in the casinos all the time. And that's back when they were driving these huge, like, Escalade pickup trucks with the 20-inch spinning rigs. Oh, yeah, the spinning. Oh, shit. And they would Spinners. park them right in front of the, the, the casino so everyone knew they were there. And it was just these spinning rigs. I mean, it was just, it was a really interesting place to live. So here I am. I move out to Aspen. And I really, really loved it. I mean, um, um, you know, I, just like everything else, I just threw myself in. And I was working nuts so hours, but I was loving it. You know, I went from, you know, a cellar that had, you know, you know, Citizens Wine List was very, very good. And Andy did an incredible job of building that list. But this was like insane. I mean, 25,000 bottles. You know, every great producer in every great vintage is just like a playground. But I didn't know a lot of them. You know, I was still really young. So I took the wine list home and I... For a month, every single night I went home until I fall asleep studying every single producer, every vineyard, every bottling, every vintage, taking notes on the list because I wanted to be able to show value. And, you know, I picked it up really quickly and created a nice little community there in the restaurant. And um, it just ended up being not only a great for my career, but just great for me as a person as well, living in that place. And it was it was an um, exceptional experience. So while you're doing that, <clears throat> you are you studying for your MS? You know, I when I left DC, I sort of hit like um like a wall in my personal life. You know, I was when I I passed my advance at the age of twenty four. I, I I passed introductory certified in advance in a year and a half. Wow! Like I just hammered it through, mm-hmm. and I actually took I took advance with with Dustin. That's how we met. Okay. And um, so I sort of just hit like this person. I was like I was like man, I'm like I just turned twenty five, moved to Aspen. I had done nothing in my personal life. All I'd done is work. I went to college. I worked. And I was studying. And I really just wanted to, like, screw off for a little bit. So I did. And for six months, I lived in Aspen. For six whole months. I know, right? Yeah. That's, you, I mean, I mean that's I'm just thinking, how I am. I'm, 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 like, I'm like, you're 25. You're supporting yeah. your sister and her children. I mean, you're like, oh, okay, I'll take six months off and just kind of, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, Aspen is, is a place where you can do that, which was great. It was great for me. Because um, a lot of people don't take life too seriously there, which is which is awesome. Yeah. But I took my my work. I always took my work seriously because like that was one. I knew again. I was aware of the experience to work with the seller, but I also knew that I was was bringing home the bacon. So I took it very seriously, and so I'd work nuts of hours, and I'd get off. And for six months, this is a true story. I I not a single night that I just go straight home. I went out every single night for six months. I and, did that for six years, bro. <laughs> 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 but Aspen is like it's a, it's a party town it's yeah, very conducive yeah, to that yeah, yeah. and so one day I'm in the restaurant and Jay Fletcher who's a massive sommelier great guy he walks in he's at the end of the bar and I also feel honored because he was like this guy of like folklore uh-huh. and if you know Jay you actually know that like one Jay is super hardworking, very intelligent but he's also incredibly approachable mm-hmm. he's a real down to earth guy in the way he approaches things so he'd come sit at the end of the bar order a glass of wine and just, you know, chat you up, you know? And I was just always so nervous talking to him, you know? And one day he goes, he goes, Carlton, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, when are you gonna take the master? I was like, you know what, Jay? I was like, I'm really enjoying myself right now and I'm not sure I'm gonna take the masters. Like I, I might be done. And he's like, what? He's like, you literally passed all three of the first exam on your first try by the age of 24. Like you can do this, like you can pass the masters. I was like, I said, I just don't know if I want to, you know? And he's like, okay. And he comes back to me like a month later, goes into the bar, and he's like, oh, by the way, he goes, I just talked to the court. We're going we're gonna to host the exam in Aspen at Lunell. He goes, it might be a little embarrassing for you if you don't take the test. 
That's what he says to me. Oh, man. <laughs> Which, if you know JJ's a very competitive guy, he knew what he was doing. He was, like, right. sparking that part yep. of me, yep. like, that competitive, and it, and it worked. Yeah. And I was like, okay, when's the exam? He's like, it's in May. This is He's talking to me in, like, November. So I have, like, six months to prepare for the master. I haven't picked up a book in nine months, almost a year. So I said, okay, let's do this. And I pretty much, again, it was cold turkey. I didn't go out again until the exam, not once. And it was just back in the, in the zone. And I went back to studying six to eight hours a day. Uh, seven days a week and tasting four days a week and just like very, very intense. Um, and I took the exam in, in May of uh, 2012. I was 27 at the time. I passed tasting and theory in, in failed service really, really badly. It was my fir- it was the first part of the exam I took and I was so nervous. Uh, I, I sort of talked myself out of it okay. before I even went in the room. Which, which happens very often in those exams. Like, I always feel like mo- if people could, like, get outside of the nerves, it would, the pass rate would be way higher. Yeah. Because there's so many really, really smart people taking those exams. Um, but they just get so nervous, it sort of just blocks. You know, I've seen it now administering the exams. I mean, that, and, and we're, I mean that's, that's super mental services. Yeah. I mean, that's I – mean, I mean, by mental, you know what I mean? Like, you're right. What you're saying – it, you're in your head, like if you can, if you can picture it going well, but you can't. You, yeah. You're picturing everything that's going to go wrong, and yeah. you're just, it, it must be hard to wrap your brain around that. Yeah, but also, you know, we've looked at that, and um, you know, having conversations like the exam. Why, why does the exam need to be stressful? Yeah. Like what? Like so? Yeah. Like they're they're looking at changing the whole format to get rid of all that, which is great. But back then we didn't have that. So I was standing outside of the room, and there was like a moment of reckoning. I was like, I'm. I was looking around this room. And I was like, I'm 27 years old. I was by far the youngest person there. I knew where I was from. And I questioned. I said, I, I, I said in my head, I go, I go, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. I'm you, like, who talked you, you into you doing like, this shit? You're like, Ninja, you from D.C.? Yeah. No, but I was thinking, I was yeah. like, I can't believe Jay talked me into this shit. Yeah. It's what I was thinking. I was yeah. like, oh, my God, I'm going to fail so bad. And I walked in. And I remember it was Brett Zimmerman, another uh, master sommelier. And they looked at me and said, okay, again, what's your name? Where do you work? Right? They, I think they do that to like, confirm you're the right person. Yeah. You know? couldn't say my name wow and i sort of just stared at him and he just looked at me like oh no he's like down goes frazier you know like down goes, and i just like down goes frazier. oh yeah i was just like i was like i was like and i just never recovered from that and i walked out and i don't know if you've ever attempted something that you failed so badly you knew you didn't have a chance that you can almost like you know actually you alleviate and you just start i started laughing when I walked out, oh, I was yeah, like, man. I, I was like, that, I, was, that was me with the bar exam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, oh God, that's over. But then I, then I wasn't stressed out anymore. It was sort of like being a server yep. and you walk around your first trade glasses, you drop all the drinks. After that, somehow you're like a little more confident. Yep. Next day I went in, I did uh, my theory. I did really, really well. Uh, pass. And then I did my tasting and I passed. And next year I just had to come back and pass my service. I spent the whole year really um, just building my confidence was really what I was doing and Jay helped me a lot about that just just conversations you know just building your confidence of like getting over like the mental block because it's it's personal right and which was also in and of itself a very interesting journey but like the power of the mind yeah yeah, yeah. and so you're the second so was D was D Lynn the first African no, no actually who, who, um, who was actually the first um, who who was the first um, he's gonna kill me because he's gonna kill me watching this cause nah can, it's all good man I can tell you right now. normally I have a producer here who's looking this stuff up man I know, right? No, I can you know, tell you. Right but now. you know, we 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 just we just came off the dome with this one. You know, so we're like, it is. Nah, see, they got that wrong. See, Wikipedia, we got to fix Wikipedia. Wikipedia has Andre, and Andre 
took only his, his level one. Yeah, he's an S-Wing. I know. Which, by the way, I, uh, uh, it's Thomas Price. Okay. Yeah, Who's in, who is, by the way, an exceptional human being. Incredible guy. Works with Jackson Family Wines. Uh, okay. Lives up in Washington State. Uh, really awesome guy. He just he just is. And I was he passed the, the first year I took the exam. And he's just one of those guys everyone was really happy to see pass because he just he's uh, well, he's very committed to the industry, but he's also a very good person. It yeah. matters a lot. Yep. Um, totally. Yeah. So so I passed. It was very interesting. I uh, so I passed the exam that night. You know, like you'd imagine, we just sort of you know go out, eat, drink, celebrate. You know, everyone's there. What you have, man? What what champagne do you have? I know it was some. But champagne. you know, a- Andy was there. Okay. My, my mentor. So he oh, passed wow. the year after me. But it was he was so proud. It was like a dad watching. You know what I mean? Like he yeah. was he just like, you know, Andy, Andy. He's a big guy, but he's a crier, right? Yeah. He's gonna hate that I'm saying that, but he really is. He's like <laughs> he's a guy. He's a crier. So he's crying. You know, uh, he, he's he's uh, Andy. You that, don't cry. Your eyes sweat. No, but he's, from holding back the tears. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's such a genuine guy. Yeah. He's no BS. It's like you know he is who he is. He's just like, um, and we went out and we, we 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 drank so much and. But then the thing was, I came the next morning. I woke up, I showered, and went to work. Like nothing had happened, and I showed up to work, and I was sitting there, and then like so I was like, "Hey, man, what's going on?" I'm like, "What's up?" And he's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Working." And he's like, "Sure, you want to take a couple of days off?" And I'm like, "No, I'm good, thanks." And so I just go back to work, and then he came back later. Day. He's like, "How about this? Just go take a couple of days off." <laughs> and it was very good. He saw like I was way more stressed out and still holding it all back, like more than I realized. Yeah. And I just went down to Boulder. Actually, I didn't tell anyone I was coming or anything. I just went and checked into a hotel. And I just went and like decompressed for like three days. Like, okay, are you 20 years old? You're passing. Okay, now what? Yep. You know, like you spent yep. so much of your life, your adult life doing this thing. Like, what do you do now? Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. That's that's really. I think that's a something people struggle with is um, when you achieve something big, if you don't have anything lined up behind it yeah. or. It's this huge void. Like, what do yeah. you do? Yeah, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, what do you do? Like, oh, all of a sudden, I don't have like any superpowers. I'm not like, glowing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm just like the same person. Great. I just have this. This I achieve this thing, which is cool. But it's like, all right, now we can do your life. Yeah. 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 All right. So let's fast forward uh-huh. to uh, 2018. Mm-hmm. How does this this kid from from Southeast DC become the president and, and CEO of Height Seller, which is you know, I have d- different levels. I do have a lot of industry people who listen to knowledge, but for um, it's one of the most revered Napa Valley yeah. OG Heights Martha Vineyard, uh, one of the greatest wines of the world. How do you end up at Heights, man? So I was um, at at the Nell, and we got a call saying someone wanted to do a tasting in in the cellar. We built out this private cellar tasting room, which was really great. It was a lot of fun, great sound system, just like yeah, it had a great vibe. And um, we said okay, but I sort of. The real story is I, I I had one of my head sommeliers and I just said hey look you can do this I'm I'm really busy, so he hosted him and I I came down just to say hello because I always did that I wanted to just to make sure I show face and make sure people are taken care of, and I went down and I said hello, and I ended up being in the cellar for six hours with this guy and it was Galen Lawrence, and we from the beginning we really really hit it off, you know he was definitely a, a very sort of um, like salt of the earth very forward very jovial. Um, you know, a uh, uh, kind of guy is like a very magnetic personality. Gotcha. Yeah. And we just had a whole lot of fun. You know, we drank a lot of great bottles, and we started to talk about the wine industry as a business and different areas and things like that. And he was saying, you know, that he was interested in um, getting into the business, but maybe on the on the land ownership sort of farming side and things like that, because that's what his family had done for a long time. And I said, well, that's great. And he says, what do you think about the Napa Valley? And I, 
I said, yeah, you know, it's, it's a great place to invest. Property value is great. It'll always go up. You know, it's very limited. And just by those rules alone, it's a great place to, to invest. And we talk about a couple other places, Burgundy and things like that, which are great places to invest. And he said, thanks. And, you know, and um, he reached out to me about a month later because he was, um, you know, he, um, he wanted to throw this big party at uh, one of his farms in, in Arkansas. And he was asking for my advice on some things. So we, we sort of just kept in touch. And ultimately, um, he texted me again. And he's like, hey, look, you know, I, um, I have this opportunity. I want to run by you and see what you think. And it was Heights. And he was asking my opinion of it. And I was just really thrilled. I said, look, this is like one, one of the very few um, still family run, just great legendary, um, classically structured Napa Valley wineries that's still making really great wines. And uh, I think it'd be, be incredible for you to own it, you know. And uh, he said, okay, great. And we talked about sort of what the potential was. And then I didn't hear from him for a while. And he, he went through, he got in, he did the deal. And I, um, he called me when it was done. And he was like, hey, like, I want to thank you. He's like, you know, I, I you know, your advice was, was great. And, and we, you know, we got the deal done. And I loved it for you to come out to Napa and, um, and check it out, which I was really excited about because I'd never been to Heights. I didn't know many people who had mm-hmm. actually been to Heights. Mm-hmm. So we flew out. And spent some time there with his, uh, he had, um, he had worked with some people in Napa to help bring in a team because he didn't really know people in the community there. So they helped him recruit some people. And I met the team and, and Brittany Sherwood, who's, who's still our, um, uh, director of winemaking, um, was there. And, um, it was just really great being there. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's such a special place, um, that's been under Vine and making wine for so long that you circle, you can feel the energy there and it's really, really pleasant. Um, so we, you know, um, went out for dinner and talked a bit about what his goals were with it and things like that. And what I sort of saw was that maybe the team that he had hired at the very, very top, maybe didn't have the same goals that he had. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I think it would, maybe you want to talk to them and make sure that your goals are, are aligned. And, uh, cause I think they have, uh, not they, though it was one gentleman who was hired there was maybe had a different vision. It was not about right or wrong. It was just a different vision. Yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, and he confirmed, he's like, yeah, this is not, yeah, he, he, he definitely wants to do something very different. I'm not really sure it's the right attempt. And I agree with Galen, his approach. So he's, you know, he says, okay. And he went around and finally the guy decided he wanted to move on. He was looking for, he wanted to work for a winery that allowed him to do what he wanted to, what the vision that he wanted to, to do, right. which is, you know, I think, I think it's his right to want that. And, uh, so Galen called me and he says like, why don't you come on out to Napa again and, and, uh, let's just, let's just hang. And I'm like, wow, this has turned out to be pretty great for me living in Aspen come out to Napa once a month and like all right living that uh middle of nowhere coastal life yeah (laughs) Yeah. no it was it was was, but I mean fucking Aspen I mean I've seen pictures I mean that's that's a good gig Aspen uh it it might be better than New York to Napa I mean I mean the little now may be the greatest wine director position in the country it's nuts I mean, for a number of reasons. Yeah. And uh, so I came out, and that's when we started having, started having the conversations. You know, he pretty much said, look, you know, if, 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 if you own Heights, what would you be doing with it right now? And I sort of made a list, and, you know, he, he really liked a lot of the ideas that I had and agreed with him. And uh, that's when he asked me to sort of come on board, and um, we started having conversations about it. And um, when I started, um, you know, it was very important that I, I left a little now in, in good standing. So... It was a really difficult time. I, I commuted for four months between Aspen and, and Napa every week. So I worked in Aspen um, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then 7 a.m. on Monday morning, I was flying direct to SFO, driving straight to the office, and like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday morning, flying back. Mm. I did that for, for four months, no days off. 
and I had three suitcases that I was living out of and just taking everything, put in trash bags and giving it to the dry cleaner and just repacking the same clothes. And then the suitcase, it got to the point where I was not returning rental cars. I would leave the suitcase in the rental car and just park it in the long-term parking, go to Aspen and come wow. back three days and get back in the same rental car. Like it was nuts. I did that for four months, and then finally, when I got to move to Napa is where I felt like I was really, really there, and we, we started in really quick order, um, sort of defining what we wanted to do for, for the very long term as an enterprise. Yeah, yeah. Um, you said something a little bit earlier when we first started talking mm-hmm. about heights. Um, uh, why do you think like um, places like heights and frogs, a lot of the old, the old guard that makes, first of all, has some of the best vineyards and yeah. some of the best. They kind of have been overshadowed in recent mm-hmm. years. What what is what do you think is at the the heart of that? Or yeah, I mean, well, well I think there's a number of, of elements that play into it. Um, you know, we we saw a really big switch in the very early '90s in the style of wines from the Napa Valley. Sure, and that was that was that was really uh, driven by two ele- main elements. One was when a lot of the vineyards in the Napa Valley was, were, were replanted, they, instead of being replanted with um, sort of the Napa sprawl method, which is really uh, conducive to the climate and so forth in Napa, they were replanted with vertical shoot positioning. Not to geek out too much, but that essentially what it does is it pretty much, it, it takes your canopies and squishes it up really high and all your fruit is very exposed. Yeah. And they were planted in north to south. Sun goes east to west. Mm-hmm. So you have is like a very warm climate. Napa Valley has always been hot. Um, very sunny, mm-hmm. right? Which is two very different things. They serve each other, but they can they they the heat and the sun have two different two different effects on the vine. So your fruit just getting you know a little a little bit of the morning depending on the fog, but in the in the, in the, the evening just getting cooked, hammered. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know that was a thing, right? And then uh, you know along with that, under that guise was there became this really misguided and sort of ignorant approach. The um, smaller yields are, are better, which is not true um it, it just it, scientifically it makes no sense um if you understand like how vines produce fruit it, it makes absolutely no sense i mean if you think about natural selection in general that's why animals have large you know breeds i mean the more you produce the, the better you're gonna survive well but. it's just it's just it's about a, a, a balancing the vine with the type of soil okay. so you know yeah if you're if, if you're in mountain soils uh that are that don't hold very much water you're not going to get much vigor so you know being somewhere between like Two to three tons an acre is very natural. Yeah. Right? That's what you're going to get. And if vines are very old, almost you know less than that. But if you're in the the valley floor with soil is a little more fertile, then by nature the the, the fruit will it has actually a lot of water. It's going to absorb it. It has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. The energy, the you know the growth <laughs> has to grow somewhere. It's how a plant works, right? Right. Heat, sun, water, you get growth. And if you're not restricting a small amount of fruit, obviously your, your canopies just stay in a vegetative state. Canopies are going crazy. You're constantly trimming them. What happens is you end up with a lot of those pyrazinal characteristics that never really, um, um, they always remain in the grapes. So people are trying to, you know, ripen them out. Okay. To do that. And, okay. and along with the, you know, with the vertical shoot positioning, now you're, you know, it's really difficult to have a harvest fruit that isn't raisinated. Yeah. And the second thing was, you know, Robert Parker had a massive effect on the Napa Valley, astronomical effect. Um, and which was very, I think, uh, you know, obviously was not there at that time, but it must have been very confusing for a lot of people because ultimately 
the reputation of the Napa Valley was really built about on the wines that were produced in the early 70s and sure. late 60s, which were uh, very elegant wines and very nuanced 12. wine. 12.5. Yeah, but then, then you had 8. some incoming saying, oh, no, no, like this is what you should do. You're like, no, no, like, but everyone loves these. Yeah. Like we literally just beat the French at their own game with these wines. Right. Why are we changing? But he was his, you know, his word was, was that was it. That's what people trusted. So if you wanted to play that game, you had to produce a very particular style of wine. And ultimately, I think you ended up with a lot of people who were producing wine that they didn't like themselves. But I, I, I to your point, you're absolutely right. But like, I don't think like he ever gave Heights bad ratings. I mean, because it was so terroir driven, man. It was so, yeah, yeah, it's so fucking unique. So, man. so this is a real story. So one reason he didn't get bad scores is Joe didn't submit wines to him. Okay. Joe didn't. Joe didn't. Joe, Joe didn't play that game. Joe, and that's what I love about Joe. Really refused to, and he was. You know, Joe never really, I never read anything or heard anything about him saying anything negative about someone else's wines. And we actually approach it the same way. I, I think there's room at the table for, for all different styles and they should exist. It makes a wine region far more interesting, right? When you look at Barolo and as tumultuous as the sort of traditional versus modern technique fight was for that region, with the result was better for the region. You had modern style, which still exists, and you have the very traditional style, which still exists. And I actually like drinking both, you know? Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I like Joe's approach of like, look, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't make the wines that you want to make, but I'm also saying that I don't want to make that. That's what I want to make, and we can both coexist and be totally fine. I love that. But that wasn't necessarily narrative. Like, people who went towards the modern style really sort of looked down on the guys who were really traditional. So they sort right. of like went and, you know, receded back, stayed out of the public. And didn't really play the game, yeah. you know. Um, like and, your Smith Madrones, people like that, like this. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. look. We bought Burgess. Yep. I mean, if you drink Burgess, you know, Bill Sorensen made the wines for forty years. Burgess, drink Burgess in the seventies, eighties. Those wines, Burgess, are Foreman, all those brilliant, oh brilliant wines. God, I mean, man. Stony Hill, Stony, right? Like all these, all these Diamond wines. Creek. Yeah, right? I mean, we talk about with the red I and mean, with the different mm -hmm. uh, terroir. I mean, so, so ultimately, but what was getting like the hundred point scores and in the big, oh, yeah, big prices? Bombastic were, wines were like this style of wine. Yeah. Again, totally fine with people drinking those wines and enjoying them, and they should still be made because if that's what the winemaker wants to make and that's what they feel is the best expression at place, they should do it because right. that's what this thing is all about. Right. Right. Um, and, and, and ultimately, you know, we may have a difference of opinion. Now we do our thing and that, that is okay. But ultimately they sort of just got left in the dust um, with marketing and PR and exposure. Right. I think it's more that. that there's, there's that too. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, because they also were there. These were, they were vigneron, right? They were not, uh, they yes. were, they were not into like marketing and being flashy and like having super pristine tasting rooms and things like that. They were like, look, we make great wine, and that is what it's about. Yeah. So, like, you should be, you know, paying for it. My work's in the bottle. It's not in this. And that, that was Joe's yeah, thing. Yeah. You know, he, he had a little tasting room on 29, but it was the last. He had, it was still free. Like, you know, the tasting room was still free when we were having. That's what he, and, and it was because, now, financially, doesn't make any sense. But, you know, but he did it because it was just sort of, he wanted to keep things a little bit more casual. And, you know, he started in Napa Valley in the early 50s. It's a very different place. You know, he worked for Andre Chalachev at Bolio Vineyards for 10 right. years. He's a right. winemaker. That was his day. So now living in modern Napa in the 90s, where it was like the height of, you know, just tons of just excess. You'd come money, out of the 80s, man. Yeah. The excess. And and I, I like I did an IG live with mm -hmm. Stu Smith. I'm like, you're talking when you're talking about heights. And, They're a great and, family, by the way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm like, you're talking about people who were in Napa Valley pre-Judgment of Paris. Like, mm -hmm. like, like believed in what yeah. they were doing, you yeah. know. So, you know. Yeah. Um, but what I can tell you has been really, really great is um, – you know, as we started to, we were, we have been very blessed to have been able to acquire 
you know, three of the most historically significant estates, being able to um, bring in winemakers and estate directors that are young, very talented, sure, who um, they understand the significance of these wines. Respect. They absolutely respect it. And they like, you know, they're honored to work in these cellars. Yeah. I mean, you think of, you know, Jamie Motley at Stony Hill working in the cellar where they've been vending fan wines since the early 50s. She's only the third winemaker in the history of the estate. Mm. You know, Brittany is, you know, that actually that cellar has been actually, um, you know, we when Joe bought that estate, the cellar was already there. It was built in the 1890s. They've been making wine in that estate since the 1880s. Yeah. And she's only the third winemaker ever at Heights. Wow. And she's now taking care of that state. You know, we've got Megan Zoback. You know, there's actually only the other. She's the third winemaker at Burgess. They had the same winemaker for 40 years. And now she's able to make those wines. And they're just they're just so honored. And they understand, again, the value of the opportunity they have to, um, and the freedom to make those beautiful, elegant wines. And maybe in a, in a market that doesn't necessarily always champion that. Um, you know. Yeah. So... We're getting close. To, uh, we're actually past top route, but that's okay. I just want to, and as you were talking, I just want to say, and I want you to wrap this up with this, like, um, you have been able to acquire some iconic estates. Um, uh, you have been quoted as saying, as Americans, we have to look at wines like Heights as national treasures. Mm -hmm. uh, and you mentioned Stony Hill, like Stony Hill. I mean... Talk a little bit about that, um, uh, that these, you know, these are in fact, and I will, you know, when these drop, I've been doing this on Instagram, but like last week, Kevin's really was in. Yeah. I don't know when this is going to drop guys, but historically, this is the week of June, Yeah, <laughs> you know, know you know, it's like June 11th today, but, um, he brought a 1968 hmm. Heights Martha's Vineyard because that's the year I was born. That's great vintage. Oh my God. Well, it was amazing. Yeah, and it probably still age longer. I oh know. yeah, no, and, and it was it was fresh, dude. Yeah. It's it, it's you yeah. know, the cork was kicked. Yeah. But how do you expect that? But like, yeah. had the signature eucalyptus mm -hmm. just singing and just was beautiful, yeah. and the color it was no bricking. I mean, it was the yeah. color was amazing. So, talk about these 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 estates that you're getting to work with as national treasures. Well, well this is the thing, you know. I, I I'm a bit old school, and I think that you know, my my grandmother used to. Um, quote out there, I'm pretty sure it came from the Bible, which is you, you judge a man by his works. And ultimately, I, I don't really invest too much in what people say. I watch what they do. And I've always found it really odd that people are willing to go and pay 600 bucks for a wine on its first release. Dude, I said it all the time. Like, dude. <laughs> like, this is crazy, right? That's and, like, crazy. One, it's like, it's one of the, you know, the three winemakers that are making like 150 different wines, which means they actually aren't making Right, exactly. It's like, you know you know the yeah. names and they are consulting here and there and yeah, they're so bringing a dude like, from France and yeah, like, and he flies made, like, in once and. Yeah. So you got that. You're like, okay. Okay. Again, you, you know, your, your prerogative if you want to buy it. But then, you know, um. But you don't necessarily put that same value on a, on a winery that has proven that they can make wines that can not only age for 60 years, but longer. Um, you know, you talk about an investment value, like chances are, and I'm just saying it's like those wines are necessarily engineered to age. They just don't age well. No. Um, no. And again, it maybe you're you're not trying to age a wine, which is totally fine. Right. You're buying for your use, which is like drink the moment. But like you don't need to pay in 600 bucks for that. And, and, and you know, a state, um, you know, a state needs to prove itself. And what we loved about Heights Cellar, Burgess Cellar, Stony Hill was that they had proven that they could make wines yes. that would age 50, 60, yes. 70 years. So we, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. All we were doing was trying to take these young teams that could come in and, and, and look at every aspect from farming to bottling to release and go ask the question why. 
because what you ask the question why is where you 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 start to understand it. When you understand, then you can evolve because you can't evolve something until you understand why it was done. Absolutely. So we ask the question why all the way through, so we understand it scientifically and philosophically, and that gives us an idea to see what points that we can continue to evolve. Because I I absolutely in my heart believe that. Um, Taking a, a, an old estate and never change, changing anything or evolving anything just to preserve actually is not in the spirit of what those those estates. That's are not about. how life works, even. But bro. it's also yeah. not how you preserve it. Like yeah. the goal is like to continue to make it better. Yep. And and the only way you can do it is if you understand why we're doing it. So, yes. but we also we we understand how those wines are made, so we know like. You know, I want a wine that does have some presence, but it has to have freshness. It has to have structure. And you can only do that if you understand how to farm properly in, in Napa Valley and not try to mimic Bordeaux, right? Yeah. Make the wines in a very particular way, right? And then how you bottle, how you age. There actually are very particular techniques that we've learned from studying old books from all these estates, which we inherited. And, like, it's 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 pretty particular. We know how to do it. And that's what we're doing. It's been really fulfilling because we ultimately – you know, you only have so many years um, um, on this earth and how many vintages. If you're not making wines that you're thrilled to put on the table with your friends and share, then you sort of got to ask the question, like, why am I doing this, right? Mm-hmm. So for Galen and I, what we we, we hold our, each other accountable was that we committed we were never going to make wines we didn't want to drink. Wow. And at any point, if we were forced, we felt forced to do it, then we, we were out. You know, we weren't going to do it because I don't want to do that. And he doesn't want to do it. Um, and... You know, where I'm blessed is that the people that I've been able to recruit, like they are the people who are making it happen. I don't farm. I don't make wine. Right. I don't, you know, right. it's my job to find these great opportunities to put the right talented teams in there to make it happen, to carry on the legacies. And, and, and that's really what we, we've been able to do. Completely decentralized, no corporate structure. And we just hire these really ambitious, really passionate people and let them run these old estates. It's a very unique model for the Napa Valley. People don't do this. Uh, but we put a lot of trust in our people and we market them, right? Like you don't, you know, I started working in Heights, but you barely see me in anything with Heights anymore. Why? Because Eric Elliott is the estate director, Brittany Sherwood's winemaker, and they're doing it. I'm not doing it, you right, know? Right. And it's the same for all of our estates. Um, you know, we started a brand called Brindell, hired Cassandra Felix to oversee that. We just launched that brand. That's her brand with those winemakers. You know, I help conceptualize it, support them, uh, make sure the business models work and we're, you know, we're good. But that's their baby. And we let all these, these we, you know, they're like racehorses. We just let them go. And it's been really incredible to watch. It's a very different feel and, and, and emotion than what you see in most of the Napa Valley. Um, and, and it's been really personally fulfilling for all of us because we essentially, you know, in very short order, you know, created our own little peer set and our own little bubble that for us is it makes us really excited to get up and go to work in the morning. And that's what it's yeah. about. Yeah. Yo, man, I'm looking at the time. I know you got a lot of shit to do, a lot of people to see. You know, it's a, it's a time. Oh, it's not bad. Yeah, you know. But um, oh my God, Carlton, thanks so much for uh, making this happen, uh, coming in, uh, sharing some of your story. Uh, can't wait for you to come back. We'll have you back on for part two. Um, yeah. You know, um, and maybe uh, everybody won't drink up the wine you shipped from the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, man. Um, Tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing uh, at Heights, at Burgess, your own Instagram. Where can people find you? And yeah, of course. Reach out? Um, well, obviously, you can always support all of our, our, our brands, um, you know, HeightsCellar.com, Burgess Cellars, uh, Stony Hill, and, uh, and Brindell Wines, uh, four incredible brands, all focusing on uh, very well-balanced, age-worthy, fresh, vibrant wines for the Napa Valley. Uh, and, and, and again, supporting the teams there. Um, 
also the Roots Fund. Um, it's a nonprofit that I helped to start uh, really in the middle of the pandemic um, with uh, Akimi Dubose and Tahira uh, Habibi, and we've been able to do exceptional work. We've given out about 40 scholarships in less than a year, and um, it's it's been, I think, life-changing not only for the candidates, but for us as well. It's been really fulfilling. So uh, please support the Roots Fund as well and, and the work that Akimi has been able to do there. And um, yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, Carlton, once again, thanks a lot, my man. Um, so good to finally meet you in person. Really uh, applaud what you're doing, how you've done it, everything you overcome. Okay, everybody, this is your boy MJ. Until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the deep thinkers, and to all you wine drinkers out there. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. <laughs>